Welcome to this special episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. On today's episode, Jackson State University Associate Professor of History and Margaret Walker Alexander National Research Center Director Robert Luckett talks about Margaret Walker's life experiences as both a black intellectual and black artist. This presentation is made possible by a grant through the Mississippi Humanities Council. Please note that the following audio has been pulled from the This Is My Century, Margaret Walker and the Black Arts Movement video, originally recorded on June 12, 2020, as part of the Lunch Lecture series posted to the Mississippi Library Commission YouTube channel, and has been edited to better fit the podcast format. So, stay tuned! Hey there, and welcome to the Mississippi Library Commission Summer Lunch Lecture Series. The series of Zoom lectures is made possible by the Mississippi Humanities Council. Today we're learning about Margaret Walker and the Black Arts Movement. We have talking to us today, Dr. Robbie Luckett. He's a civil rights historian and his expertise is on modern civil rights movement and the African-American experience. As director of the Margaret Walker Center at Jackson State, Dr. Luckett has become an expert on Walker's life and her experiences, especially as they relate to the Black Arts Movement in the 20th century. If you have questions throughout, you can use the chat function, and when Dr. Luckett's done with his his talk, we'll loop back to those questions. So go ahead and when the urge strikes, just go ahead and type those questions in and we'll get them at the end. Robbie, you ready to roll? Yeah, thanks, Tracy. I'm glad to be here and glad to have the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite topics, Margaret Walker, who founded the center that I run at Jackson State back in 1968. And um, when I give these talks, I often title them, This is My Century, which was the name of Margaret's last book of poetry, and really kind of aptly describes her life experience in the 20th century and how she really laid claim to that century from a Black intellectual and Black arts perspective, which we'll talk a lot more about today. And so we'll kind of jump into it here. Margaret Walker, this is one of my favorite pictures of her, taken by the Harlem Renaissance era photographer Carl Van Vechten in his New York City studio. More probably famous for some of the images he did of other Harlem Renaissance era writers and artists, especially Zora Neale Hurston, the famed images of Zora Neale Hurston that were taken in that same studio. Margaret was really about a generation too young to have been in the Harlem Renaissance and the Chicago Renaissance, but over the course of her life and career, she's going to get a chance to know and work with and interact with just about everybody who was anybody in that movement. She was born in 1915 in Birmingham, Alabama. Her parents were incredibly well-educated and sophisticated, Sigismund Walker and Marion Dozier Walker. Sigismund had a master's degree from Northwestern University, right? And to be a black man as a Jamaican immigrant too, living in the deep South in 1915, and to have an advanced degree from an institution like Northwestern was pretty unheard of. And you can imagine that Birmingham wasn't the most hospitable place for them to be and to raise a young black family. 1915 also is an important year and watershed point in American history for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that Birth of a Nation premieres that year, the grossly racist depiction of black life in the antebellum era and postbellum reconstruction, which leads to the rise, the birth of the Ku Klux Klan. And in 1915, the Klan, with the premiere of Birth of a Nation not too far away in Atlanta, is going to reappear. It had actually sort of died out after Reconstruction had been gone for a while, but it will re- reappear on top of Stone Mountain, Georgia. Um, burning a cross on top of Stone Mountain when Birth of a Nation premieres in Atlanta. And along with that, a number of other things are going to happen. The death of Booker T. Washington. And just you can imagine for a family, a sophisticated intellectual family like this in Birmingham, it was hard. And so they're going to move to New Orleans. And that's really where Margaret's going to be raised, is in the city of New Orleans. I love this picture of her mother. That's her on the the right, standing there with her concert orchestra. She was a musician. Um, You can imagine growing up in a family like that. Sigismund Walker, her dad, would take a job at New Orleans University, which is today Dillard University in New Orleans, and would be teaching there. He also would be a pastor during that time. 
1915, being in New Orleans was a place where you could have interactions with a wide array of people. And at one point, when Margaret is just 13 years old, her father helps to arrange a guest lecture at what is now Dillard by Langston Hughes. And Margaret, who had started writing thanks to encouragement, she's only 13, we're talking 1928, had started writing thanks to encouragement from her parents, including a diary that she would keep for the rest of her life for more than 60 years, um, diaries that are in our collections at the Margaret Walker Center. She put down early examples of poetry that she was writing. You can imagine that at 13 in 1928, it was not very sophisticated. But she goes to this talk with Langston Hughes and her parents make her take some of her writing with her. And they want her to present it to Langston Hughes during a book talk uh, and signing. And so she gets in line for the book signing and for the talk and goes through, meets Langston Hughes. But of course, at 13, is too embarrassed and too scared to actually give her poetry to him. Her parents make her get back in line and do it again. And this time she does. And Langston will become her mentor and, and friend for the rest of his life. And as you can see in this, I love this picture, Jackson State in 1952, that's Langston sitting next to Margaret. That was the 75th anniversary of uh, Jackson State in 1952. And what you see there are a whole host of Harlem Renaissance era, writing, era writers like Sterling A. Brown, Owen Dodson, just an incredible group. In the middle, standing right behind Margaret is the then president of Jackson State, Jacob Reddicks. To his right, to the immediate left on the screen is Melvin Tolson. Some of you know that name from a movie that came out a number of years ago now starring Denzel Washington called The Great Debaters. Denzel Washington played Melvin Tolson's character, who you see uh, in, this, in this wonderful picture. So uh, Langston is going to become Margaret's mentor, and he's going to help get her first poem published in the NAACP's Crisis Magazine when she's just 16 years old. It's a pretty heady company. It was a short piece. It was called I Want to Write. Um, we actually have a recording of Margaret reading I Want to Write. I'm sorry I don't have it to share here today. But you can imagine being 16, Langston Hughes is getting your poetry published, and it's being published in the NAACP's flagship magazine. And of course, the editor at the time was W.B. Du Bois. So Du Bois is her editor, Langston is her mentor, and um, she's publishing in a major national magazine. Some pretty heady company. And she will continue to join Langston at various events throughout the country and programs, including in 1943, being invited with Langston, who you can see, I don't know if you can see my cursor in this picture, I'm kind of hovering it over his head right here, at a writing retreat that's famous in upstate New York, still around today, Yaddo, Margaret and Langston, um, and there's Margaret over here on the left, were the first African-Americans ever invited to attend Yaddo and they're there together in 1943. Langston's also going to encourage uh, Margaret to continue writing and continue publishing, and, and she will be dedicated to his memory for the rest of her life as well. Another great picture we have here, the 1971 Langston Hughes Festival, the whole host of remarkable um, black intellectuals and artists um, who you see here. Of course, you have uh, Toni Morrison standing directly behind Margaret. You have James Baldwin and Ruby Dee. You have Ossie Davis, an actor named Roscoe Brown. This is Toni Cade Mabara, the famous poet writer. You can see how her life and her career is going to, again, span the 20th century, especially in the black arts movement. She is a person who connects the likes of Du Bois and Langston Hughes to James Baldwin and to Toni Morrison and to even current writers today who often pay homage to Margaret, including the likes of Kiese Lehman, Natasha Trethewey, Jasmine Ward, um, some of those famed Mississippi writers of today. So really, when she talks about this is my century, she really has this incredible impact. But as I was saying, Langston is going to encourage her. He's going to encourage her to continue her education, especially. And she's going to move to Chicago and attend her father's alma mater, Northwestern University, and receive her bachelor's degree from Northwestern in 1933 at just the age of 18. Again, just a really remarkable context. And thanks to Langston in Chicago, she begins to meet many, many more people who are engaged in the renaissances of Chicago and Harlem and, and eventually what will become the Black Arts Movement that doesn't really 
kind of officially get a stamp or an acknowledgement until the, the 60s at least um, as, as an actual movement, right? The Black Arts Movement didn't have a name um, in, the, in the 20s and 30s. And so in Chicago, she's going to meet the likes of St. Clair Drake, the famed sociologist who, with Horace Caton, would write the classic work about Chicago, Black Metropolis. I love this picture of St. Clair Drake. This is at Jackson State at a conference that Margaret hosted in 1971, the National Evaluative Conference on Black Studies. I particularly love the picture of Malcolm X behind St. Clair Drake's head. That is a, a, an image of Malcolm X that we um, still have in our collections at the Margaret Walker Center. She's going to meet others, including Sterling A. Brown, who you see here visiting with Margaret Walker. And most influential on Margaret's life, she's also going to meet Richard Wright. And Richard Wright is going to have a really strong impact on Margaret's life. And there's a lot that we could say and talk about in terms of their relationship and, um, and, and what it entailed of, whether they were in love, whether she was in love, whether it was unrequited, whether they were just close friends, whatever it was, Margaret certainly took to Richard Wright. And while he was in Chicago and she was there, he would be working on Native Son, his famed novel. And she would actually type the manuscript of Native Son for Richard Wright while living in Chicago. But Wright would leave. And, and Margaret, if you go back and look at her journals, she was fairly heartbroken and thought uh, long and hard about kind of what it meant to be in, in relationship, whether friendship or more, with Richard Wright. And that would eventually lead to the biography that she wrote here of Richard Wright, Demonic Genius, A Portrait of the Man, A Critical Look at His Work. And you can see some of the notes that we have from that in, in Margaret's handwriting in our collections at the Margaret Walker Center. She would also take over his Southside Writers Group um, when he leaves. He'll leave Chicago and initially move to New York before moving on to Europe and, and Paris. And eventually, Margaret is trying to decide, okay, I'm here. I've got my undergraduate degree. I, I, I'm in this community. I'm writing, but I need more. And she decides to go to graduate school and to continue her education. And she will move to Iowa and attend in the second year of its existence, the Iowa Writers Workshop, one of the most famed writing programs in the nation to this day. And there, her master's thesis would be her classic poem and book of poetry by the same name, For My People. Um, what you're seeing here is just an excerpt of For My People. Many of you know that it is, it's not quite an epic poem, but it's significantly longer than what you see here. And I would encourage you to check out the full version of it. And also through the Smithsonian Folkways Project, there is a recording that you can find via iTunes of Margaret reading um, For My People, which is incredibly powerful. And I think particularly in, in today's context, you uh, see how pertinent it still is to, to a modern world and all that we're facing in this country and the, the protests and unrest and continued calls for social justice. I love the last stanza in particular. It's probably the most famous. Let a new earth rise, let another world be born, let a bloody peace be written in the sky. Like a set, set, let a second generation full of courage issue forth, let a people loving freedom come to growth. Let a beauty full of healing and strength, the final clinching by the pulsing in our spirits and our blood. Let the martial songs be written, let the dirges disappear, let a race of men now rise and take control. And For My People will receive widespread acclaim in 1942 when the Yale University Press is going to publish it and Margaret is going to receive uh, the Yale Younger Poets Prize, one of the most prestigious writing prizes in the country, and it was really going to launch Margaret into to international, just not, not just national fame, but international fame. On a side note, while Margaret was in Iowa, her roommate in 1939 was a young artist getting her MFA at Iowa, uh, a woman named Elizabeth Catlett, who uh, of course passed away just a few years ago and was one of the most influential American, not just African-American, but American artists of the, the 20th century. And Margaret will maintain a, a relationship um, with Catlett and Catlett would do a set of lithographs in honor of Margaret's book of poetry. And Catlett called it, of course, For My People. So 1942, Margaret's 27 years old. She has found international fame all of a sudden. And then at the same time, she falls in love and she gets married and she marries 
harnessed James Alexander, seen here, and also a wonderful picture of her grandchildren that are in our collections. Uh, the thing about marrying Furness and the choice that Margaret had to make, and, and most women have to make, right, was what is the relationship between my career, my literary career, and what is just kind of exploding in terms of my fame and my success with the burden of a family. Burden may not be the right word, but with the decision to, to get married and have a family and settle down. And it was even more complicated because Furnest was a disabled World War II vet. And so for all intents and purposes, Margaret was the breadwinner for the family. And so that meant she needed kind of a stable job and she's gonna have four children and it's gonna be her responsibility to try and, and be in one place to help to raise those children and, and support the family. And she begins teaching. And over the next seven years, she has various stops before in 1949, she arrives in Jackson, Mississippi. And as a civil rights historian, I would just say, please let's understand the context that Margaret is arriving in in 1949 as a black female intellectual and internationally renowned poet coming to Jackson, Mississippi. And she comes on a one-year appointment in her journal. She talks about how when she gets here, she just, she hopes that she's able to stay for at least two years and that she comes to Jackson by herself because of that uncertainty. She left her family in North Carolina. Her two youngest kids went to stay with her parents in New Orleans. And so she comes to Jackson, Mississippi in 1949 alone and unsure about whether or not she would stay. And of course, she spent the rest of her career here in Jackson and, and at Jackson State from 1949 to 1979. Not long after Margaret moved to Jackson, of course, we understand the context of the burgeoning modern civil rights movement, particularly in post World War II era and the World War II generation that comes back from the war, particularly of African-Americans are gonna be at the forefront of the movement, not the least of whom in Mississippi is Medgar Evers. Five or six years after Margaret moves to Jackson, Medgar and Merle Evers will move with their young family to Jackson and build a home on what was then called Gyne Street in Jackson and would be neighbors with Margaret Walker. They lived just a few houses apart from each other on Gyne Street. Um, and here's a, a lovely picture of the Gyne Street Garden Club. This is um, one of my favorites, replete with punch and pedophores. Over here on the right-hand side of the picture is Margaret, and in the center is, is Merle Evers, who in retirement today in California, you may have seen on the national news just this week, led a protest march at her in her retirement community and just a, a beautiful sense of continued activism from, from then to today. And Margaret would, and her children would be close friends with the Evers family. And Margaret, of course, would be devastated when Medgar was assassinated in his driveway in 1963, again, just a few houses down from where Margaret and her family lived. And should also note, right, that the NAACP offices in Jackson to this day are on John R. Lynch Street, just about half a block from the Jackson State campus. And so Margaret literally lived and worked on the same streets as Medgar Evers. And when Medgar's funeral procession occurred in Jackson, it went down the middle of John R. Lynch Street. So you can imagine that that had a deep impact on her and her thinking, and she would publish a collection of poetry called Prophets for a New Day that used civil rights activists as metaphors, uh, or used biblical prophets rather, as metaphors for civil rights activists. Her poem for Medgar Evers was Micah, and uh, of all of Margaret's poetry, this is my favorite of hers. Micah was a young man of the people who came up from the streets of Mississippi and cried out his vision to his people who stood fearless before the waiting throne, like an astronaut shooting into space. Micah was a man who spoke against oppression, crying, woe to you workers on iniquity, crying, woe to you doers of violence, crying, woe to you breakers of the peace, crying, woe to you, my enemy. For when I fall, I shall rise in deathless dedication. When I stagger under the wound of your paid assassins, I shall be whole again in deathless triumph. For your rich men are full of violence and your mayors of your city speak lies. They are full of deceit, we do not fear them. They shall not enter the city of goodwill. We shall dwell under our vine and fig tree in peace, and they shall not be remembered in the book of life. Michael was a man. I think, again, a very real strong indication of how we can see reflections of the past in, in the present. Not long after Medgar is assassinated, and really at the same time in that era, Margaret is thinking about returning to the University of Iowa Writers Workshop to do her PhD, and she will. 
and her dissertation will become her famed novel, Jubilee. And here's a first edition cover uh, of Jubilee published in 1966 by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It has never been out of print. Again, this is a revolutionary moment and I think a, a place where you see a type of activism that we don't often give a lot of credit for. It is a notion that scholars talk a lot about now, um, art as activism in particular. But Jubilee is the stories of Margaret's great-grandmother and grandmother going from slavery to freedom. And the main character in Jubilee, and this is a picture of her signing copies of Jubilee in 1966, on the left is at Jackson State. Um, on the right is in, in a bookstore uh, in Atlanta. But her main characters were her, her very real grandmother and great-grandmother who in the book, their names are Vairi and Minna. And here are pictures of the real Vairi and Minna from Jubilee. You'll notice that Margaret's great-grandmother's name was Margaret Duggins Ware Brown. Um, you'll notice, if you know much about the book Jubilee, the two main male characters that drive it are Randall Ware and Ennis Brown. So we're talking about real people. And then El Elvira Ware Dozier. Um, and you'll see that her grandmother, who's Elvira, who will actually live with Margaret in New Orleans and tell her, begin telling her as a child, the stories that are gonna become Jubilee. Her name, Elvira, will be used, Margaret will use it as, as her main character's name, Vyrie. That's the, the, the etymology of, of the name Vyrie. But we should understand that this is a real story and it opens the opening scene. I don't wanna to give too much away of Jubilee. Um, if you haven't had a, a, a chance to read it, I would highly suggest that you, you, you do so. The opening scene is Margaret's great-great-grandmother dying in childbirth during slavery after being repeatedly raped by her master. And she publishes that story in 1966 in Jackson, Mississippi, living on the same street Megger's been assassinated on three years earlier, right? Also <laughs> living in Jackson where in 1966, the Meredith March Against Fear would arrive and be the largest single day civil rights protest in the history of the, the state of Mississippi. And on that march, the term black power will be coined by Willie Ricks and Stokely Carmichael and SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. It's in that context that she publishes Jubilee and, and should be understood. Jubilee would also initiate a genre of fiction that would become known as neo-slave narratives or neo-slave novels that will include some more famous works like Alex Haley's Roots, Toni Morrison's Beloved, and others. But Margaret's is really the first that kind of launches that genre in 1966. In many ways, it was a little too much like Roots. Um, and here's a picture of Alex Haley with Margaret and Nick Aaron Ford at a program at Jackson State before Roots was published. Margaret would actually sue Alex Haley for plagiarism in Roots. She wasn't the only person. She did lose her lawsuit, not necessarily because she was wrong. Alex Haley just was able to afford a, a lot more and better lawyers than, than Margaret was able to have in, in all honesty. But he would actually settle other lawsuits for plagiarism in Roots out of court. And if you know much about the autobiography of Malcolm X and his role in it, there is some, uh, some concern about what Alex Haley's role was in rather embellishing the story or taking some liberties with it. But still, Margaret was deeply hurt by that process as well and will, be, will forever kind of be pardoned by that experience. The late great poet Amiri Baraka, formerly Leroy Jones, came to Jackson State to give a talk for us one time and told us a story about going to Margaret's house. She was famed for having dinner parties at her house, cooking, especially her famed gumbo. And going to over to her house for dinner one night and walking into the foyer of the house and on a table was a copy of Jubilee and a copy of Roots. And Margaret had highlighted all the passages that Alex Haley had plagiarized for visitors to be able to see when they came into her house. So. Um, a, a moment that's going to deeply uh, impact Margaret. From Jubilee in 1966, two years later, Margaret's going to found the Institute for the Study of the History, Life, and Culture of Black People, seen here with her staff members, what she called her Black Studies Institute in 1968, rather. And again, let's understand that context. It is 1968 in Jackson, Mississippi, that she founds the Black Studies Institute. San Francisco State is often credited with having the first Black Studies program in the nation in 1968. No one ever talks about Margaret's Black Studies Institute at Jackson State in 1968, except for us. So hopefully we can um, dispel the notion that the lack of memory around the work Margaret was doing in Jackson, Mississippi, and I would submit to you that Jackson and San Francisco were two very different places in 1968 to be doing this work. Of course, 68 being the year that Dr. King is assassinated just a few hundred miles 
up the road from Jackson, right? Just a few hours drive away. And Margaret would be deeply impacted by the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Here's a, a copy of one of her journal pages from April 4th, 1968. Um, and you can see kind of the bottom paragraph at 1 p.m. tonight, the Reverend Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis. And she goes on to say, "What a, I saw what a grim city Memphis was and is just weeks ago. May God have mercy on us. What will happen next? And Margaret is going to go on to begin in 1969, January of 1969, a Martin Luther King birthday convocation, beginning nine months after Dr. King's assassination, sponsored by her Black Studies Institute, a commemoration of his birthday in 1969, one of the very first MLK Day remembrances anywhere in the nation, in Jackson, Mississippi, at Jackson State, something that we have been continuing for the past 53 years, every year through the now named Margaret Walker Center. And shortly after the founding of the Institute and the assassination of Dr. King comes the Gibbs Green tragedy at Jackson State, May 14th and 15th, 1970, when Jackson City Police and Mississippi Highway Patrol march on our campus and will fire more than 400 rounds of ammunition in the span of about 28 seconds into Alexander Hall, a women's dormitory. There had been protests at Jackson State for a number of years, uh, attempting to close John R. Lynch Street through the middle of our campus. John R. Lynch was a black congressman during Reconstruction. That's who that, that street is named for, from Mississippi. And white motorists would use it to speed through on their way off into downtown or back home to the suburbs and to West Jackson. And they would shout things at motorists. They would shout race, racist epithets. They would throw things from the windows, rocks and bottles. They would uh, attempt to hit black pedestrians in the crosswalk trying to get from one side of campus to the other. In 1964, they would actually hit a Jackson State student named Mamie Ballard. And then that incident in particular would launch protests over each of the next six years to attempt to close John R. Lynch Street. On the night of Thursday, May 14th, when the police and city highway patrolmen arrived, at some point earlier in the day, someone had stolen a dump truck and set it on fire in the middle of John R. Lynch Street in order to block the traffic and to prevent it from coming through. But when the police and highway patrol arrived, they did not arrive to put out the fire in the dump truck. They arrived in the middle of the night when no protests were going on at all, and they turned and opened fire on Alexander Hall, claiming erroneously that a sniper had been in the women's dormitory firing upon them, something that's been completely debunked. In the span of those 28 seconds, they would murder two young men, Philip Lafayette Gibbs, who was a junior political science major, who was married at the time with one young son, and unbeknownst to him and his wife, Dale Gibbs, was expecting a second son. She only found out she was pregnant with their second son, Demetrius, after about two weeks after Philip is killed. The other young man who was killed is James Earl Green. Earl, as his family called him, was a senior at nearby Jim Hill High School in Jackson. And he was walking home from work on the opposite side of the street from Alexander Hall which means the police had to turn and fire in the complete opposite direction of where the supposed sniper had been. If you get a chance, we just had a 50th commemoration uh, event that had to be held virtually because of COVID-19 and the coronavirus. Um, you can check that out and in a digital exhibition about the survivors of Gibbs Green at www.jsums.edu slash Gibbs Green, all one word, just Gibbs Green, the Jackson State homepage slash Gibbs Green. And it, in many ways, again, I think ties us very closely to the present, the protests that were launched after the shootings in Jackson. Um, most people don't know that the governor's mansion today where protests were held this weekend, where I was proud to be amongst um, so many incredible people on this past Saturday. Most people don't know though, that the wall that was built around the governor's mansion in Jackson was built after the protests that went downtown following the murders of Philip Gibbs and James Green by um, Jackson City Police and Mississippi Highway Patrolmen. That's why the wall is there to this day. There was never any justice served in the Gibbs Green case either. No one was ever tried. And 
in a civil lawsuit against the city and the state, a number of the, of the victims and plaintiffs lost their civil lawsuit, which would go all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And Margaret writes about this extensively in her journals as well, and has some, some very powerful words to say that I think resonate to this day as well. And you can go to our website and, and check out those journals um, if you're interested and, and jump into them under our collections tab. Three years later, um, Margaret is going to host the groundbreaking Phyllis Wheatley Poetry Festival. I mentioned some of the conferences that Margaret would have at Jackson State that would be some of the first of their kind in terms of Black studies and, and the field of, of Black studies. The 73 Phyllis Wheatley Poetry Festival would bring nearly 30 Black female writers to Jackson in celebration of Phyllis Wheatley's book of poetry and its bicentennial poems on various subjects, religious and moral, and just a remarkable moment in the history of Jackson State. I love this picture, some of the attendees. You will know some of them for sure, including Nikki Giovanni, um, seen here reciting some of her poetry with the Tougaloo Choir singing behind her, one of my all-time favorite pictures in our collections and uh, of Nikki. And Nikki owed so much to Margaret and considered her a dear mentor. When we um, commemorated Margaret's and celebrated her centennial year, in 2015, Nikki came back and helped us dedicate this bench to Margaret in front of Air Hall, the home of the Margaret Walker Center today. And she also, in 2016, agreed to pin the forward to our new 50th anniversary edition of Jubilee, um, which is available on ebook, audiobook, still again in uh, publication by Harcourt Houghton Mifflin Press. Also at the Phyllis Wheatley Poetry Festival were the likes of Paula Giddings and Alice Walker, seen here walking on campus near President's House in 1973. Others included Mari Evans, Sonia Sanchez, and June Jordan. Um, another beautiful picture. That's Margaret in the hat pointing. She was famed for her hats as well. She had all kinds of hats that she would, would often wear. With the Phyllis Wheatley Poetry Festival in 1973, Margaret would return to her old friend and grad school roommate, Elizabeth Catlett, and she would commission Catlett to create a bronze of Phyllis Wheatley seen here at the festival on the left in 1973. And in the university collections at Jackson State today on the right, there were two of these that were cast and one is held at Jackson State and the other is at the National Museum of African American history and culture. Margaret would continue her academic career at Jackson State. She would retire in 1979, at which time the center would become named for her, our Black Studies Institute, and my predecessor would take the rounds, Dr. Alfredine Harrison, who we owe so much to in terms of our stability and, and, and longevity in our community. She would continue publishing, continue writing. This is seen at a book signing in Oxford at Square Books, I believe. A photo you'll notice here taken by Bill Ferris, who's recognizable to many of you, I'm sure, on this call. Bill, of course, founded the Center for the Study of Southern Culture at Ole Miss. He founded the Center for the Study of the American South at UNC Chapel Hill, and he was chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities. But what most people don't know is that Bill began his academic career at Jackson State, and he lived on Gine Street. He was neighbors um, with Margaret Walker, and this is one of many images that Bill has graciously allowed us to use that he took of Margaret over the years. Of course, in Jackson, she had other close relationships with writers and artists. Many people think about Eudora Welty and Margaret Walker. Of course, I would be remiss if I didn't point out here, Welty and Walker do not become close friends. They do eventually become close friends, but not until much later in life. Because you can imagine that the Jackson that Welty and, and Margaret inhabited in 1949, when Margaret Walker got here, did not really allow for a black woman and a white woman to interact. And so the institution of segregation kept them apart, although they knew of each other. And, and again, would become such close friends that they would go on lectures together and they would joke that their joint lectures, they would call their sister act. And so they did become good friends. And some of you also remember the event in 1998, not long before Margaret died, that honored Eudor Welty, Thalia Mara, and Margaret Walker, and just one of the, another one of these just beautiful um, pictures of these three incredible women. Margaret's going to pass away in 1998, uh, again, shortly after that, and leave an incredible legacy, one that we're proud to continue at the Margaret Walker Center as a Black Studies Research Center, Archive, and Museum. We are, are proud of our legacy, proud of our founder, and proud to continue to be able to do the work that we do to this day in and around our community. I would invite you to check out our website, 
Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're pretty easy to find in those places. Learn about our collections, use them, join our listserv, come to our programming. We're doing some groundbreaking programming, including the Gibbs Green program that I mentioned earlier. We normally would celebrate Margaret Walker's birthday uh, in the summer on July 7th with our annual Jubilee picnic. Of course, in the context of coronavirus, that's not going to be able to happen this year. And so kind of peppered throughout Margaret Walker's journals or some of her recipes. I mentioned she was known for her cooking and, and for her meals. And so for Margaret's birthday this year on July 7th, we're going to do a cooking demonstration and create her maple nut cake recipe that's found in her journals and celebrate her birthday virtually that way. So with that, I'll end there and I'll stop the share on my screen and I guess open it up to, to questions and comments. Thanks. Well, before you stop sharing your screen, we had a lot of comments about some of the photos. I mean, two of them were my comments. So, <laughs> but I wanted to look again at the Yaddo picture and the Langston Hughes Festival, just so we can look at some of the other folks in the picture. And Yes. So if we go back to Yaddo, there's the Yaddo picture from 1943. Yeah, I was I looking. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I don't know off the top of my head the names of all of these people, but there is, Yaddo does have a, a collection where I believe, and I, our archivist is on this call, Miss Angela Stewart. I believe that we do have um, some information on the names of some of the other people who are in this picture. Yeah, I recognize Carson McCullers. She's wearing those little, uh, she's on the right side, sitting down next to the, the man, kind of sitting in her lap. But yeah, and I was, I couldn't really see, she's the only one that I, I recognized right away. But what a, Margaret is like, she just is is in the middle of all kinds of things. And the, the same with the Langston Hughes Festival picture. I think it's the next one. Just all of these, I mean, I, I, before you said, oh, here's, James Baldwin. I was like, oh my gosh, it's James Baldwin. It's just <laughs> interesting that um, all, all these folks are together. There was another, what a great photo. I would just I note think, quickly about this picture. Yeah. How all of these people are standing around Margaret with great homage to her, right? To tell the sense of reverence that this community of scholars and writers and actors, actors and artists, what they have for her. And I would note here too, just a side note, anecdote. She was very close with James Baldwin. She called him Jimmy, which is apparently what all of his close friends called him. There is the famous now documentary about James Baldwin, I Am Not Your Negro. And in it, there's a moment, uh, and, and some people know this story, where he comes to Jackson and he meets with Medgar Evers. Well, James Baldwin was coming to Jackson because of Margaret Walker and, and because she was his mentor and she's the one who's going to get to introduce him to the likes of, of Medgar Evers before the assassination. And you can find those pictures of James Baldwin with Medgar um, online pretty easily. Sorry, Tracy. Oh no, that that's that's great. I was rushing along. I think someone had said what a great photo, but I think it was about the Nikki. Oh wait, who was the lady directly behind Margaret Walker? And oh, that's In this picture. Yes, that's Tony, Tony Morrison. Yeah, I think it was the picture of Nikki Giovanni that someone else had commented about. Um, the recent one or the one at? I the think it was the older one. Yeah, I think it was that one. I think that's. I mean, that is that's an amazing. Amazing photo. It's a, a beautiful picture and you can you can almost hear them singing behind yeah, her by just you really can. There I, I I mean I have a lot of questions, but um I guess I guess we'll you know ask the ones that people asked in the chat. Just kidding. Um someone has asked, can you tell us a bit about how folks in Jackson and around the country have remembered Margaret since her death? Have there been moments where people have turned to her her or ignored her for a lack of a better word? Yeah. So um, I, I talk about this um, quite often in presentations, although I didn't really bring it up here. There's a number of reasons why Margaret kind of, uh, Nikki Giovanni famously called her the most famous person nobody knows. And, um, and there are a number of reasons for that, not the least of which is some of the ways she was treated by black men, including Richard Wright and Alex Haley and what happened there but also because of very personal choices that Margaret made. And she certainly had agency in this story when she made the decision to get married and have a family, which she was happy to do. She loved being a mother and, and being a wife and, and raising her children. It certainly was a more conservative notion of 
um, of her womanhood and motherhood than some other, particularly by the time you get to the black arts movement in the late 60s, than some other people would have chosen. But she made that choice herself. And in choosing a teaching career and settling down, you know, she goes from 1942 to 1966 for 24 years between her major publications. And that's because she's got a life. She's got family. She's got kids. She's got a job, right? And so that's going to interfere with kind of what was her fame. But yes, people to this day continue to remember her. They continue to write about her. Dr. Mary McGram from the University of Kansas has a biography of Margaret with Oxford University Press that I hope we'll be seeing here very soon. There are, are numbers, a number of events and, and programs that have happened to honor Margaret through, throughout the country. Um, and we get requests for information and resources about her all the time. You know, I think about the 50th anniversary edition of Jubilee and working with Houghton Mifflin Harcourt on seeing that published with that new forward by Nikki Giovanni uh, in it. And so we work on a daily basis to try and lift Margaret up into national consciousness where she um, we're, I think making some good progress and some success. Last uh, summer, we hosted the Association of African American Museums meeting in Jackson, which is the National Black Museums Conference. And so really spreading what I call the gospel of Margaret um, is central to, to all the work that we do on a daily basis. We have another question. What's the usefulness of reading Margaret Walker's work during our current moment of social unrest? Um, again, Great question. yeah, I, I would say, and let me say this from the perspective of a historian, our, our present is a function of our past, right? Where we are today is a function of everything that has happened, not just in Mississippi history, but American history. And, and I've said this recently, Mississippi is a part of American history. It is a part of America. It is not a part from America. Um, and it is, it is part of that story. And so if we go back and you read your poetry, you read Micah, you read For My People, you'll see consistent theme, themes particularly of, of violence aimed in systematic ways at marginalized communities and African-American communities in particular. And you'll see Margaret calling um, for change. And that is a story that has been consistent throughout American history. Jubilee, the same way. The, the impact that Jubilee has today, and I teach it in my history classes, I teach it to, to modern students, right? The impact it has to hear the voice uh, and voices of black women from their perspective telling the story of what it meant to be enslaved and to live through reconstruction and, and all the terror that was reconstruction as well i, I think it has a, a powerful message for us today in understanding that we still got a long ways to go and that much of what we see in in the news today around social unrest and protests and calls for justice and human equality and dignity and civil rights are calls that have been consistent throughout American history in the face of particularly white supremacist violence propping up a power system that's still around in America and that still has most of the power in America. And so I think it, it gives us a sense of our past and how that is very much connected to our present and how much work we still have to do in this, this country. Thank you for that. We, I think, all enjoyed the story of the copy of Roots laid out, all highlighted. That Baraka, yeah. Yeah, that's that's something. We had some wows with a lot of W's on the end in the comments about that. But when you showed the picture from her journals, and someone's like, "Oh, I love the the doodles." Tell us about her journals. Did you say that they're all digitized? Or can we just browse online? Yeah. So um, Margaret uh, kept a diary for 60 years. It is, they are 13,000 handwritten pages. Um, they are available through our website, which is just the, the Jackson State homepage, jsums.edu slash Margaret Walker Center. Word, Margaret Walker Center. And there's a collections tab and you can see uh, the, under the collections tab, you can see our digital collections and you can go, um, they are all uploaded in uh, content VM. Thanks to grants from the Ford Foundation and NEH, we digitized half of the Margaret Walker papers, which is about 35,000 items that are available for researchers and others to look through, including nearly all of the pages of the journals. And I say nearly because there were some that were in such a condition that we couldn't digitize them. Um, it would, would have been unsafe uh, to do so. And so, but for the most part, every single page, including this about MLK, we, if you join our blast, on a fairly regular basis, we send remembrances out kind of from the journals that speak to modern times. 
And one last week that we sent out was shortly after Dr. King's assassination and in the same journal, she visits a family in New Orleans and in New Orleans, there's still social unrest happening and there, there are buildings that are burning and she writes about this and she, she wonders whether or not America has the moral fortitude to do what's right and to change. And, you know, that is such a pertinent question uh, for us today. And I would also just note here, especially as much as we talked to him, that I talked about him, that 57 years ago today was the day that Medgar Evers was assassinated in Jackson on that street, on Guide Street. And so, again, just how much that past continues to directly impact us today. And to understand that it's not an ancient past. <laughs> this is not ancient history. Like I said, Merle Evers was just leading a social demonstration at, his, at her retirement home in California, right? And so this is very much a, a past that impacts us and uh, you know, that informs everything we are today as a state and a nation. Quick question, Dr. Luckett. Thank you for that presentation. So one thing you mentioned during your remarks were that Margaret moved to Jackson and was living right next to Evers. That is incredible. I did not know that. Did they collaborate on anything or work on any projects together during, and I know it was towards the latter end of, of Evers' life. So was there any sort of collaboration on anything? Yeah, um, I, let me just say this. Medgar moved to Margaret Street. Margaret was already <laughs> already living there. Um, and, and they become pretty close personal friends. Professionally, um, less so, There's but there certainly are moments um, where their lives interact. We do have pictures of their kids playing together in front of Medgar's house in Jackson, right? I mentioned James Baldwin coming to Jackson. James Baldwin came to Jackson because of Margaret Walker and is introduced to Medgar Evers, right? So there's certainly that, uh, that overlap. And there are parts in her journals where she talks about Medgar's assassination and what that meant to her and her family. Uh, and you can imagine that it was scary, very scary for her but the courage to continue to do the work she did, even in the aftermath of that, the courage, despite the fear, because I don't think these, these people were fearless. And like, and like most civil rights activists, fear was a very real part of your life. But the courage to publish Jubilee in 66, to found a Black Studies Institute in, in 68, to bring some of the first conferences on Black Studies to Jackson State. Those are powerful, powerful things to, to do despite that. So they did overlap personally, especially less so kind of one-on-one in, in professional things, but Margaret certainly supported. And she also talked about being afraid in her journals too. So yeah, it was a complicated thing for sure. Any other questions? Um, Angela pointed out in the chat that there's Margaret's scrapbook that outlines the similarities between Roots and Jubilees in your collection. And I'm very interested in that. She also spends pages in her diary outlining it. So you can go through the, the diaries and there's 10 to 15 straight pages of her just writing down all the places that yeah. had, had plagiarized. Well, are there any other questions? Anyone, you can you're, you can unmute yourself and ask a question if you, if you have one or any other chat questions. I actually do have a question that might be easier spoken than written. So Dr. Lucka, you mentioned that, you know, a biography is coming out soon on her life. I think you said that. And I sort of, I, I don't know, I haven't studied Margaret Walker, but I, I have the sense a bit from your presentation that there's a lot about her that could be studied that maybe hasn't been studied yet. And I just wanted you to speak to that. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is so much. And we do have scholars and others who come from uh, literally around the world to, to study her and to study her, um, particularly in relationship to the, both the early part of the 20th century and our connection to the likes of Du Bois and Hughes to the Black Arts Movement of the late 60s and beyond. And you know, for us, it's fascinating to see, and I'll say for us, for me specifically, to see Margaret's relationship with so many people we know so much seemingly better in, in our kind of American consciousness than Margaret. But there's a lot of work to do to understand the significance of Margaret in her own right and in her own standing and in her own intellectualism and in her essays and in her art and in her writing and in her poetry and, and in her, her novels, her novel Jubilee. We even have an epic poem in our collections that's missing some parts in it and there's pieces that are, are, are gone, but it's an epic poem that she dedicated to Jean Lafitte, the pirate from New Orleans. I mean, imagine this this woman from New Orleans writing an epic poem in honor of Jean Lafitte. 
Um, and so the, the breadth and the depth of Margaret's intellectualism, I sp think, speaks to why she had such an impact on such a wide array of people, particularly African-Americans. And just the courage and fortitude she showed throughout her life to do this work is really remarkable. So I think there's a lot there to be said. There is a biography that has been in process for some time that I think will be considered the definitive biography on Margaret Walker, thanks to Dr. Mary McGram from the University of Kansas. I know we've got Sheila Bonner on here, who's a, one of Dr. Graham's students at Kansas, and that's something that we hope to see in the near future. And I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't mention that Carolyn Brown published the very first biography of Margaret Walker during the centennial in 2015, which is, is, is a lovely book about Margaret and her life, and one that's digestible uh, if you want to learn more about her, and uh, um, is just, it's a really wonderful work. So. There's a lot of different avenues to pursue in here. There's, you know, looking at how Margaret impacts people like Alice Walker, who lived in Jackson for such a long time, um, and particularly Alice Walker's notion of womanism, and also the conflict that Margaret had with people like Alice Walker and, and others. Frankly, you know, she is not going to be a, a fan of much of Alice Walker's work, even though at one time they've been pretty close. And she had a fairly conservative notion of, of womanhood and motherhood, as I mentioned before. And so, the, you know, human beings are complicated. <laughs> There's their contradictions in their lives. And there's a lot of different avenues to pursue. Hi, this is Angela Stewart. I'm the archivist at the Margaret Walker Center. And I wanted to look at that question. And I say a really good area to look at Margaret Walker is talking about racism and sexism for women in academic spaces, in academia. That's something she struggled with and she wrote about. And it's something that I think needs to be addressed more, both not just her experiences, but just women in academic spaces writ large and the impact of race and sex and gender in academia. Absolutely. And um, getting a little bit of feedback here. That's something that I also talk about quite a bit and the, the sexism that Margaret faces, particularly from black men. Um, showed the picture of her with the group in 1952 for the 75th, um, sorry about that, for the 75th anniversary of Jackson State. I think at best you could say Margaret's relationship with Jacob Reddick's was tumultuous. <laughs> she, she butted heads with him. He refused to give her a sabbatical to go on a book tour when Jubilee was published in 1966. Wouldn't, wouldn't let her go. And so she's certainly finding sexism, misogyny, and racism all at one time, especially coming to Jackson, Mississippi, and black men in her life, like I mentioned, Alex Haley and Richard Wright, they play a role in that, and they play a role in some of the obfuscation of, of her legacy, for sure. All right, anyone else? All right, well, Dr. Luckett, thank you so much for this great talk. I think we've all learned a lot. I think we're gonna flood the server all um, looking at the digitized diaries, and we just really appreciate you doing this talk for us. Absolutely, I'm glad to do it. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate you, Tracy, and the Mississippi Library Commission, and our friends. Thanks for the moral support out there. All right, thanks for coming, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. We hope you will tune in next time, and we encourage you to visit your local public library often.